Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 127th edition. I'm Stefan Christoph. Thanks so much for being with us. On the program today, we're going to continue with a series that I've been sharing that features the voices of community activists speaking to the realities of gentrification and the housing crisis in Montreal. This is part of a project that I've been working on with a bunch of sound artists here in the city to reflect, document, and speak with community voices about what gentrification means in different neighborhoods, and also how people have organized together to resist the housing crisis in different regions of the city. Today, I'm going to be sharing an interview with community artist and housing rights activist for many years, Norman Navratsky. Norman lives in a very important housing co-op network in downtown Montreal called the Milton Park Co-op. Norman was involved in the organizing around various actions to protect social housing and affordable rental units in the city, including big protests against the eviction of the Overdale housing units right downtown in Montreal, and also has been involved in Milton Park Co-op for many years. Norman has mixed art and housing rights activism through a series of collaboration with housing rights organizations, including FRAPU, uh, which is a network of housing rights associations in Quebec. And this interview looks at this moment in 2022, but also frames this moment within a context of reflections about different points of collective action and community organizing for housing rights here in Montreal, Geogiage, over a couple of decades. Here's our conversation. My name is Norman Navratsky. We're here in Milton Park in a housing co-op, which is part of the Milton Park Housing Co-op network of 35. Are we 35? Maybe 27. 27 27 non-profit, self-managed, social housing projects yeah for sure and this is what it's all about right this was all going to be torn down for condo towers and people fought back and saved it and thankfully like i'm now living here and it's affordable rent and it's self-managed and it's a an oasis of of housing self-controlled housing like in the middle of a city where rents are rising everywhere i first started getting involved in housing issues when I was young in Vancouver, growing up in Vancouver, active in my neighborhood in the east end of Vancouver, the Hastings Sunrise part of Vancouver. And we were protesting what was called back then block busting. Um, Speculators buying up blocks of family housing to tear down and erect apartment blocks or shopping centers or whatever. And we had many, many fights across the city to resist that. And we would go to City Hall, demonstrations. We would demonstrate outside credit unions that were funding this, like Van City Credit Union. Uh, And we linked arms across the city with other tenants' rights groups because this was something happening everywhere across Vancouver. And of course, today we now know Vancouver is unaffordable, so we obviously didn't succeed. Here in Montreal, I moved into this housing Mm -hmm. co-op I got drunk one night, ended up becoming an artist, quote unquote, wow. <laughs> doing spoken word poetry with music. And my poetry, my spoken word poetry, was about social issues, yeah. including housing and housing rights yeah. and tenants' rights. Yeah. So 
right from the start of my artist quote-unquote career um, I was talking about the issues and doing my part to help raise issues and have more public discussion about the need for affordable housing that led to me and my colleagues working with an organization in Montreal called FRAPRU, the, the uh, Coalition for Tenants' Rights and Welfare Rights, uh, an umbrella group of over 100 community organizations across Quebec. And we started doing community cabarets with them to inform tenants of their rights. We did a show called uh, Un Logement pour une Chanson, A House for a Song. So a community cabaret, which was funny, serious, uh, got the audience singing, thinking about housing rights, and at the end of each show, they would join up with one of the local groups and get involved and get active. Wow. Well, yeah, that was the whole point. <laughs> that was the point. The, respect, respect. <laughs> that's the point of the show. Wow. Um, the show was based on interviews with all kinds of people to talk about personal stories, housing stories, uh, eviction stories, resisting eviction stories. Uh, we had two songs in particular, uh, Condo Vampire, Vampire de Condo, about uh, the condo vampire that comes into a neighborhood, tries to destroy it and take over, and is fought back by local tenants who organize, and, and they have their sharpened sticks and rings of garlic, and they drive them away. Uh, that was a very theatrical cabaret kind of piece, but the message was clear. You guys, we got to fight back if you want to stay in your affordable housing. So we did a show like that, toured Quebec, maybe 20 towns all over Quebec, in the poorest neighborhoods, in the poorest venues, church basements, soup kitchens, whatever. And the idea was to raise public awareness. And then that work continued. Well, I've continued doing that work. Mm. Maybe just let's focus for a few minutes on Milton Park briefly. I just think it's an interesting example of a community-led struggle that led to a tangible um, change in municipal policy. Milton Park was a long-term struggle started before I arrived in Montreal in the 70s mm -hmm. when they started tearing down housing to make room for high-rise towers, condos, apartment blocks, more shopping malls and people were arrested, uh, trying to block bulldozers, but people kept on fighting. It took many years, and finally in the late 70s, the very late 70s, the end of the 70s, they won because of a confluence, a coming together of conditions where there was going to be a municipal election, a federal election, a provincial election at the same time, and all the residents got together and put pressure on all these candidates. You know, you save our neighborhood, you help us save our housing. And it worked. And because of all the resistance that had taken place before that, for years, all, for years yeah. the pressure worked. And today we have affordable social housing. We tried a similar thing in Overdale, yeah. which is another story of housing. A there's a success story and there's a not so successful story. Overdale was a small neighborhood, mixed immigrant working class, um, students near Concordia University, below Rennie Levesque. Uh, it was a beautiful oasis of, of housing trees, gardens, flowers, and people helping each other in the community. It's a very tight community. Once upon a time, a lot of the black community of Montreal lived down there. A lot of jazz musicians came out of there. We organized a very intense resistance against eviction and demolition. Many people were arrested. Many people were jailed, including myself, 
and we had one night where we organized the Tenets Are Poets too, where we, we had workshops and we got tenants to write songs and poetry and to share that with each other, to raise, again, public awareness. Um, and the issue made headlines in the papers. It gave a black eye to the current city administration back then of Jean Doré and the Montreal Citizens Movement, a so-called progressive civic organization. And despite all the arrests, despite all the resistance, which went on for months and months and months, we lost the battle. We lost that housing. They demolished it and left it a parking lot for over 20 years, which was very sad. But at the same time, we were fighting to save another block of housing on Jean Mans and La Gauchetière, where Sylvain Côté used to live. And we warned the city, if you want to see something, a repeat of Overdale in this neighborhood, watch it. Because we learned a lot and were prepared. We had built barricades. People barricaded themselves inside their homes in Overdale. When the cops came, they had to call the fire department because they couldn't dismantle the barricades. The fire department said, whoa, you guys built great barricades. We, it took us forever to get through. That's because we had architects and engineers helping us build the barricades. So we fought for the other housing block. We won that. And we won that, not just because it was a long struggle, but because of one particular afternoon, we had an art event happening on the back balcony of Sylvain's house. We had musicians, poets, artists, and community speakers on the balcony addressing a crowd in a big parking lot below mm. us. Two municipal politicians happened to be walking by, saw this big crowd, heard all this music, heard the applause, saw people laughing, having a good time, and thought, hey, this is pretty cool. This could be like a new art neighborhood or something, you know? So they called up the tenants group and said, let's sit down and talk. And they won. And they preserved that housing. And today it's social housing, it's a housing co-op. And it was that particular incident, and those politicians referred to it. Yeah, it was that day we came by and saw what you people were capable of doing. And we thought, well, maybe they can organize this neighborhood and this would be a great tourist attraction. And we won that. Thanks so much for sharing that, um, those reflections. It brings up um, a really critical point, which I think... In your stories, you feel the fragile nature of policy and the fragile nature of like the city dynamics and how that translates. I think sometimes when people think about gentrification or the housing crisis, even if there is an acknowledgement that it's, it's going on and it's 2022 in Montreal, it's pretty clear that's a very, very severe situation, a violent situation in terms of the rising house pr housing prices rent prices, people who can't even afford to rent. I mean, just close to us uh, in Milton Park, there's a huge indigenous pe population on, on, on the streets. But the point is, I really appreciated what you're saying just in the sense of like thinking about how intervention through the arts, through action, actually plays a role and that things are not inevitable and you don't know the outcome, but there's a process there and there's an unknown and yeah, any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, it's always a big unknown. You never know the impact you're gonna have. We had no idea that organizing that particular uh, artistic cultural event that day on that balcony with all that visibility would attract so many people to the parking lot and just coincidentally those politicians would pay attention to that and consider it and it paused 
and think and they yeah. reflected enough to go okay mm. this is something so that was an accidental uh, creative intervention that really worked we did the same thing earlier at Overdale we had uh, concerts in the streets and the alleys I was playing garbage can poetry local bands were playing and we got coverage in the media but none of the politicians twigged none of them reacted like oh well maybe this is a cool community after all yeah. we should save it no because the money was bigger the money behind the eviction there was bigger than the money behind the eviction here. And I think that played a key role. The politicians were bought off for Overdale because he was a really influential businessman in the city and he had more connections, more power, and they did all the dirty work for him by evicting the tenants. So, But at the same time, it was a community full of artists because where do artists live? You know, artists don't have much money. Artists are the ones who live in the poorest neighborhoods. You know, they don't displace existing people, but they're part of the gentrification process. When people realize, oh, this is a cool neighborhood. Look, there's music, there's poetry, there's theater, there's visual artwork going on. You know, then unfortunately, like sometimes artists play play the wrong role, like not deliberately, not consciously, but they have a role in that gentrification process. But in that situation in Overdale, despite all the wonderful creativity, all the music and everything else, we didn't win it. Mm. Here in Milton Park, it wasn't necessarily the art that played a big role, but artists were involved in the struggle mm. because artists are like everybody else. We need an affordable place to live. I think that like in the in the current moment when we think about the housing crisis um you know and i'm i'm just returning back to the point about like the, the fact that the housing crisis is you could say in a way spilling over right like people yeah. are just just can't rent places and there's a growing homeless population in montreal yeah. i think it's pretty clear also that there's a disproportionate number of indigenous people that are are dealing with uh yeah. housing precarity um, but I think that what I, 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 I feel like a lot of people could appreciate hearing from you is there's a lot of empathy right now for like, uh, you know, um, sort of the intergenerational trauma, for example, of indigenous people or like, you know, domestic violence situations from many communities, right? Like that could lead to uh, substance abuse and could, could lead to homelessness at some point. Um, but thinking about the idea of addressing policy, right? Like as, as artists, as, as activists, and, and the, the idea that there's addressing the individual uh, realities and the reasons that people end up in, in these situations, but there's also understanding how the pressure of the housing market pushes people out, right? Like, and that there's systems at play. And the housing crisis in Montreal, like, is not just happening, like, without policy decisions. It's, it's oh, happening. Sure. Yeah. So if, if any thoughts about that. For sure. Okay. First, first things first. You know, when people get eviction notices, the first thing to do is to say no. That's absolute first step to say no. You know, you don't have to move. You do have rights. And there's, you know, isolated stories in Montreal and elsewhere in the country that even make the news of individual tenants fighting back, winning in the, you know, tenants' rights tribunals, whatever. But the most important thing is for people to stay and fight. 
to resist and fight. And that mentality is kind of hard to generate and encourage because people don't believe they have the power to resist. And yet, when we knock on doors and you talk to people, you know that is possible. So that's one thing. Secondly, once, once people refuse to go, they have to knock on the doors of politicians and say, we're not moving, we need your help. You know, because obviously there is no housing out there. Who is in power in Montreal right now? A bunch of young technocrats who, you know, like to present themselves as green and, you know, pro-environment and pro-this, pro-that. But they're really just aiding and abetting condo developers all across the city. They're not really doing anything to throw a wrench in that machine. And that's something that has to be done. And they have to be forced to do that somehow and it's only with a movement of people from the ground up telling them this has to happen that policy of allowing condo developers to get the green light regardless of what they're doing regardless of who gets evicted that has to change that has to stop it's gone on long enough the suffering the misery the violence has to stop and they have the power to do that, but so do we. And we have the power to do that if we come together, which is what happened at Overdale 1 and Overdale 2 in terms of the attempt to stop the forced evictions. In the second Overdale on Jean Monson and Gauchetier, we won because people were prepared to do that. So thinking about uh, the role that artists play in that context, um, just, just if you could reflect it all, I mean, given you have such a, a long track record of doing work about um, expressing uh, um, struggles around housing through the arts. Um, yeah, can you just maybe share a bit about, about that, that process and how the arts plays yeah. a role? Artists have an important role to play. Artists have a responsibility to play an important role as activists. It's as simple as knocking on the doors, which is what we did, of people who you read about in the newspaper, hear about on the news, who are about to be evicted, knocking on their doors saying, hi, we play music, we do theater, we write poetry, we are visual artists, we would like to help you, we would like to work with you. You know, let's sit down and talk. It's as simple as that, because that's what we did before. Um, and then coming up with strategies for creative resistance, coming up with strategies for creative interventions, yeah. artistic interventions, whether it's you know a creative demonstration, a flash mob, a mural painting thing, uh, you know, a, a parade of, of giant puppets, whatever it might be. But artists have to take that initiative and knock on the doors of people and work with them. Totally, respect, um, and 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 just this idea of community engaged arts. This idea of also like you've addressed this before, like this idea that there's artists and there's um, you know, often people who are dealing with these questions of systemic violence, and we're talking about housing and gentrification right now, are sort of victimized and sort of removed from this idea of agency. But I think it's really interesting what you're saying, like w the work with Frepu and other. Uh, community-led processes, the idea that you would, that artists would actually sit down and, and talk with directly affected people—I mean, it seems like really simple, but the process isn't always simple. And also, like, and and finding common ground maybe is not simple too, right? 
that, yeah, okay, it's, nobody said it was going to be easy, but if we don't do it, we're not going to get anything, and we're not going to get anywhere until artists like realize that this is what has to be done. You know, our art, our lives as artists, our, our visions as artists, you know, will end up one day being blocked because we too will be evicted. We too will be in the street. We too won't be able to afford to live here. You know, it's all interrelated. We are part of this system. We're part of this city. We're part of the urban fabric that makes this city what it is. And we have a role to play. Mm. When I say the we, it's the collective we. And I'm talking about all kinds of artists, even people who just work on their computers or whatever, whether it's online art, whatever it might be. Offer your services. Knock on the doors. Talk to the people. You know, don't be afraid. Don't be shy because this is what has to happen. The art and the activism have to come together to save the housing, to, to protect tenants' rights, to protect yeah. people's homes. Yeah, that's right. Um, when, we, when we think about, just back to this point of inevitability, I think maybe some people listening to this might be like totally opposed to gentrification, right on, but there's an idea that that's an inevitable process, right? Like how to combat it. This idea also that there's not a lot of nodes because within that process, there's a lot of little things happening, right? Like there's a, a, a decision about a particular block of housing or a financial decision within a municipal or provincial budget about, you know, shifting around funds, right? Like these things can be influenced and just sort of underlining that and the role of art in pushing those changes we have to talk about this more publicly artists have to talk about this more with activists come together with activists and discuss strategy how could this work what could we do what role could we play where could we put pressure who should we target what are our resources what would be the best intervention um, you know record a song record a video put it online you know, people do this all the time, but why don't you make a song, make a video that actually talks about a particular housing issue and use it in the interest to help those people fight that issue and raise that subject, raise those questions and discuss that strategy. Any reflections in 2022 for you as an artist about having been involved in trying to articulate housing struggles through your work? It's it's an ongoing process. I'll keep on doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm just finishing a novella now. I'm writing about Vancouver, which talks about gentrification and resisting gentrification in Vancouver. Because mm -hmm. I'm originally from Vancouver, and that really breaks my heart to see what's going on in that city. So my writing continues on that subject. And I just want to encourage other artists not to be afraid to talk about that in their work, to address it in their work, because... We have to come together in order for this to stop. And we know, I know from personal experience where I live right now, this is a concrete example of social housing that was saved from the wreckers ball, saved from gentrification, saved from demolition because people came together and fought back. Mm. And if you don't try to do that, we're not going to win anything. Nothing will change. But I, this is a concrete example in the heart of Montreal of affordable social housing that came about because people actually resisted. Because people didn't believe it was inevitable that you know, they had to move, that they couldn't stay and fight. So the final word, 
resist, stay and fight. So I think two points that could be interesting to address, um, you know, if you have any thoughts about it, is the idea of like individual, the idea of individualized articulations of these systemic points of violence, right? So there's, there's a lot of people in this city right now who are experiencing the housing crisis and gentrification. And um, I get the sense that there is a lot of awareness today about, you know, economic inequality or the undervalue of labor work or systemic racism. Um, and there's a lot of discussion on these points through social media, which is so great to see. Your experience um, has, as an activist, has always revolved around trying to find alliances to address these issues. But, but from the vantage point of trying to find ways to act together and in IRL, like in the real world, in real life. And that doesn't always work. It's super complex. But I, just any thoughts about, about, about that difficulty, but also the importance of translating like that individualized analysis of the woke era, like what we're living right now, into sort of collective action. Well, I mean, of course it's challenging. Of course it's not easy. It never is. Of course it takes time. Uh, of course it takes guts. It takes, you know, you got to be bold. You've got to dare to speak out. You've got to dare to envision something else. And you've got to dare to take those first steps, mm. which is talking to other people, whether it's just one other person, whether it's one neighbor, whether it's, you know, one friend, whether it's somebody you work with, somebody you attend school with talking to them and saying what can we do you know one person's a point of resistance two people forms a line and you get three people you got yourself a wedge beginning to happen mm -hmm. that's how movements grow and that's how this has to happen people all over the city coming together one-on-one -on -one to begin with and then reaching out mm -hmm. and realizing that we do have power we can change things mm -hmm. And the more of us that are involved, the easier that's going to be. It's going to take time, but it has to be done because we have no other choice. Otherwise, you know, this is going to become a city for the rich, just like Vancouver and Toronto and everybody else is squeezed out. No, we don't want that. This isn't Montreal. This isn't even the spirit of Montreal. And the spirit of Montreal is one of resistance, historically. Whether you talk about working people, trade unions, uh, whatever. It's, it's, there's always been a spirit of resistance here. Among First Nations people, that spirit of resistance has been there forever. And there's no reason for us not to believe we can't regenerate it and revive it and, you know, form some sort of a new movement that mm. says, stay and fight, you know, no more condos. Mm. We want housing for, for normal, ordinary, poor people. Thanks, Norman, for the chat. <laughs> yeah. That was a conversation with Norman Navratsky, who is an artist and community activist. This interview is part of a series that I've been doing with housing rights activists and artists, uh, people who are directly engaged in the struggle against uh, the increasing inaffordability of living in Montreal. This project has been part of a series that I'm working on with sound artists called Reverberation d'une crise encore. 
une enquête sonore sur les logements. Uh, so the sounding of an ongoing crisis, uh, sonic inquiry into housing. So that's a rough translation of a sound art project that I'm involved in Montreal here with a bunch of sound artists in the city. So you've been hearing some interviews I've recorded as part of that process, part of that project. Stay tuned for future conversations recorded um, within this framework. Thank you so much to Norman Navratsky for being on the program today. Free City Radio comes out once a week. We broadcast on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays on CGLO 1690 a.m. at 1 p.m. on Tuesdays, both in GeoGiage Montreal, at 8 a.m. on CKUW at 95.9 FM, Treaty 1 territory of the Métis Nation in Winnipeg, and on Wednesdays at 11.30 on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario. You can find us on Spotify and iTunes. Just look up Free City Radio. And our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. I'm Stefan Christoph. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please tell a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. I'll go out with a piece of violin music by Norman Navratsky uh, here on the program today. Talk to you next week and take care.